Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Bubbles, kick us off, man. All right, so this week we have a joint episode with uh, Agile for Humans. So we got Ryan Ripley and we also have Todd Miller. And of course, you got Jeff and I. Um, we're here and we're talking talking about um, fixing your scrum, Ryan and Todd's new book. Um, so let's just, I want to hear a little bit more, guys. How, how was it actually write this book? How long did it take you? When did you start? Like, how did the process actually go um, while you're writing this book? Uh, so it's been about, well, it was two years. So we spent about two years putting this thing together. Um, it had actually, it's funny, it originally started, I had proposed a book to Prague Prague and I'd gotten started on a scrum anti-patterns book. And I was flaming out pretty badly on it. I got a few chapters in and just got overwhelmed. And, you know, training company was taking off. Like I teach a lot all over the world. And, and I just got like underwater. And at one point I just, I was like, man, I'm going to have to find, you know, someone to help or I'm going to have to quit or something's going to have to change because this is just, like, it's just not working. And uh, I'd reached out to Todd and I was like, hey, I've got this book deal. You know, do you want to come join me on this? It's, it's a really good topic. It's something we both talk about all the time, but it's just something that just got me like completely freaking out. And uh, Todd, for you know, for better or for worse, Todd typically just says, "Yeah, let's go do something." And um, so Todd joined in, and it took us about you know about a year and a half of you know looking at the Scrum anti patterns, looking at you know all the story. Like we we spent so much time figuring out like. And what what are the stories we could tell? What are the things we actually do? We didn't want to do just another, hey, this is an intro to Scrum kind of book. Like there's a thousand of those on the market and there's some really good ones mm -hmm. uh, out there that you can buy. But so instead we decided, you know, what are all the anti-patterns in Scrum that we've seen? What are the ways that we've gone about trying to diagnose and in some cases correct them? What are some liberating structures? What are some other facilitation techniques? And we just took a couple years and crammed that all into you know, a 242 page book where someone can pick it up, turn it to um, a chapter. All the chapters are based on scrum events and artifacts and roles and turn to the, if you're having trouble with your sprint review, turn to the sprint review chapter. There's plenty of stuff in there to try. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of how it came to be. I don't know, Todd, am I, am I leaving stuff out? No. And I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, as we started teaching the PSM twos together, Ryan and I would have, uh, you know, dinners and a beer or something at a hotel. And just, we were talking about all the same stuff, right? All the same stuff that we um, see everywhere that really is hindering organizations' abilities to uh, to get the promise of Agile, right? The promise, the, all the things that they were promised, you know, more delighted customers, those types of things. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's oftentimes, we, we we talk about this, and this is in our PS, PSM slide deck, you know, for scrum.org is it's easier to, change scrum than it is an organization and a lot of these things and i mean we wrote a book uh, talking about how people will change scrum um, because it's harder to change our organization so ryan i think you pretty much nailed it uh, i can't really think of anything else other than you know the the fun of it it was quite fun right yeah and, and people ask us like so how do two authors write a book because that sounds like it could be messy and and quite honestly, we wrote, we wrote it like code. So yeah. Prague Prague, the Pragmatic Bookshelf, uh, it's Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas's publishing group. You know, those two are programmers at heart. So we actually have these files that we check into Subversion and it does a book build and we always have this up-to-date PDF. And 
So we treated it like a coding project, right? So Todd would write a chapter, I would write a chapter. Our editor, Don Schoenfeld, would destroy those chapters. Um, she's an excellent editor. She made us sound far more intelligent than what we deserve. Like, Don is amazing. And, like, if Todd wrote the initial draft of a chapter, then Don would tear it up. Then I would go in and smooth it out and add my stuff and, and vice versa. We'd just keep going back and forth. And then Don would go in and kind of smooth out, you know, the, the voices. So it sounded like one coherent book. And so it was just a lot of, we did a lot of pair writing. We did a lot of, like, you know, he would do the first draft. I would fin- I would finish it and vice versa. But it was just a lot of collaborative work. And and it's funny. We actually used Scrum to write the book. So we have a Trello board that we followed. And so we would watch what was in progress and who was working on what. And we'd mark you know, who had reviewed which chapters. And we even kept track of technical reviewers. So, Jeff, I know you got to take a look at an early advance of the book. And so we were managing your you know, your feedback straight out of a board. and um, Limiting, I mean, limiting just, whip, limiting our work yeah. in progress, trying to stay focused. Yeah, making sure like we didn't start one chapter until we finished the the current one, and um, and just using all those, trying to avoid all the anti patterns that we were writing about while creating the book. So, yeah. From what it sounds like, Ryan, from early in your story, it sounds like you know you're getting going, and you had all the other distractions around you in life. But when you started pairing, you know, with Todd, that's when like all of a sudden you have this accountability partner. You guys can bounce things off of each other. All of a sudden, you know, that one plus one equals three because you're getting all these energies that are coming from that. It probably gives you a lot of energy when you're when you're pairing with somebody, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely lifts you up. Um, plus, we could kind of keep each other going. Like I would text Todd every once in a while. Hey, dude, how's that product owner chapter going? And he texts me back. It's like, hey, it's fine. How's your management chapter? <laughs> <laughs> so we would push each other. And I mean, it's just nice to have someone that you can text and say, hey, man, I'm really stuck on this idea you want to take a quick look. And so he would, you know, check out the file, you know, just, just write it two, three, four sentences that would spark something in me and just keep going. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting process too, because like, um, Ryan was saying a little bit earlier, Don, uh, she's, she's amazing. She, she's awesome. Um, and, but she, she is not, does, does not hold back on her honesty of feedback, right. Which is awesome. Um, it was actually really helpful, uh, to us, but I remember a couple of times where Ryan and I'd be like super proud, just like, check this out. Ryan would like read something and we'd be like, this is awesome. And then Don would get it and be like, it was boring. <laughs> like no, <laughs> I, I I got like a, a quarter of the way through, and then I quit because I just I hated reading it. Yeah. And we're like, okay, Is she uh? D- does she know Scrum? Out of curiosity, she does now. Okay, so how how was that? How was that interesting? Or I find that kind of interesting having somebody who doesn't have the experience kind of go in and proofread it, and then getting that that type of feedback, like, hey, this is boring, to somebody who may not be as technically adept in this subject as as the two of you are um how, how much like how, how did you take that feedback and then were you thinking of that kind of a layman person isn't the right term but uh non-specialist in, in it, mind like a scrum i master. think it's great to have that because it because we we had to write in a way that is human and readable right and I think that's where Don really helped us a ton. And she, she under this, Ryan said she gets scrum now. Um, but she would ask and she'd be like, I'm really confused here with the way that you're talking about the product backlog. Did, did you mean to talk about it that way? Because it's really confusing to me. And, and so that would lend itself to, to us really learning how to clearly write. And as Don always said, uh, to, to, to write human, right. To involve people. 
So I, I appreciated that aspect of it, her, her being a novice, right? Well, and it, it just, it forced us to be very clear and crisp with language. Like there's so many things that, I mean, we're all four professional scrum trainers with scrum.org. We talk about this stuff for a living. I'm going to get on a plane tomorrow night, you know, head down to Houston and teach a pal class and then off to New York to do some book stuff with Todd. And we're going to talk scrum for like four days straight. And there's things that we start to take kind of for granted. There's some mm-hmm. descriptions of things that we just kind of, oh yeah, everyone gets this. And you know what? Not everybody gets it. And so with Dawn, it was actually pretty refreshing. She's like, no guys, this does not really make sense to someone not working in this space. Like, can you explain it better? And I think it really forced us to you know, rethink the way we teach things, rethink the way that we were going to present it in the book. And I think it made our explanations a lot better. But it also like, you know, part of our Scrum Master chapter is about the whole, you know, I I have this thing where when I get pulled, and I think Todd does something similar, if I get pulled into a company to do some Scrum Master work, and I still do that from time to time, I love the role. I love that role. And, uh, you know, on day one, they've got me set up in their JIRA board, in their JIRA application and they've got me set up on the app that they're building and by the end of the day i've called the devops group and i've said disable both like mm-hmm. i don't need to be in the jira stuff like i'm not an admin and i don't need to log into your app like my focus is to kind of be that that person who can ask the questions that you're taking for granted and keep an eye on the the relationships the process the practice you know keep an eye on scrum go work in the organization and I think that's kind of the value that a, a good scrum master brings. I, I really think by the end of this, Todd and I, we both talked about how Dawn would make an amazing scrum master. Yeah. Oh, she was watching the process. She was watching the practice. She wasn't getting involved in the technical stuff. But she would also say like, hey, I know you guys know this, but this is boring or this does not make sense. You know, can you do this in a way that, that is helpful? And I think a good scrum master can kind of do the same thing. So it was kind of it was interesting to watch that really play out well. Yeah, and I think to to that extent too, she would uh, she would prod us every now and then, you know, uh, and just to just to see and kind of get a reaction and um, keep us keep us moving. That we I think we did hit a lull or two. I think it might have been around busy schedules and stuff like that. We hit a little bit of a lull, um, but then I think we came back yeah. super strong after that. Um, so I think I think it was well, good I, I totally agree. like life. I mean, when you take on a book, like anyone else, I mean. I had no idea what I was getting into. Like, I'll just be straight up on that. Like, I we've we've got plenty of friends who have written books and they've all given advice and and of course you don't listen to it and you just oh yeah this will be great and uh, it's a huge undertaking but wildly rewarding right. So Todd and I got to to really refine and craft and hone our, our thinking around Scrum. It changed the way we actually think about certain aspects, um, but it also like has given us this new platform. Uh, it, it's just a great overall experience, but man, it um, it is daunting staring at that that full Trello board. Yeah, and yeah. I highly recommend it. Right, I, I highly recommend it to people out there. I, I believe I believe everyone has at least one book in them. Um, you know, take it on and and but I you know what I think the big message out of this section is have an amazing editor yeah. and don't do it alone. Right, I really think. Trying to write the book alone was a huge mistake. I think writing code is a huge mistake. Trying to write, uh, or writing code alone is a huge mistake. Um, writing, you know, creating products in a vacuum alone is a huge mistake. Like this, this partnership stuff. I mean, there's something to it, right? I think there's something in every in every industry and in every vertical. There's there's a way to leverage multiple minds to solve complex problems. Right. Anything creative or complex, right? Why not have more than one brain working on it? Just makes sense. Well, and, and it's funny, too, because occasionally, I mean, we all come from the Ken Schwaber school of thought on Scrum, right? 
Mm. I mean, we all are, I mean, through scrum.org, we are all, you know, really, I mean, it's such an honor to be a PST, uh, professional scrum trainer with scrum.org. We're carrying forward Ken's vision of, of how scrum is to be taught and understood. But even then when Todd and I would talk, sometimes we were not in alignment. And so that was a really fascinating thing too, where, you know, two of us who are, are really, you know, passionate about teaching professional proper scrum had some, we had some misconceptions. We had some things to iron out and just an awesome process. So I would totally do it again. Actually, we are doing it again. Yeah. I don't, we, can, we can't talk about the topic of the next book yet, but uh, we are going back for round two. And we've got a and, full uh, Trello board to stare at again. <laughs> we have another, and man, that was, it was funny when we emptied the Trello board for fixing your scrum and it went to press and we, I know I've got a hundred physical copies of it behind me in boxes that you guys can see. Like that was just an amazing feeling. We just got our, our reloaded Trello board for the next book and that anxiety just came washing over me again. And I'm like, Oh no, what have we done? And like, I know it'll work out, but man, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a wild ride. And any listeners out there, if you decide to go down the path, reach out, Todd and I, you know, I'll, I'll volunteer myself, but if you hit me on Twitter at Ryan Ripley, happy to, um, try to talk you out of it, but then if you won't get talked out of it, um, happy to provide some, uh, some help. Awesome. When can, uh, can you forecast yet when you think this new book's going to be coming out or the title? We are, we are pressing for the fall. So I think we oh, wow. are going to have two books out this year. And so we're going to be doing some work uh, actually, this week. Huh. This will be the third book out this year, right? Yeah. Cause we are also part of Gunther Verhaeen's uh, 97 Things Every Scrum Master Must Know or Must Do. I, I don't remember the exact title, but it's an O'Reilly book. So we also contributed to that. So possible to have three books out this year. He just put out uh, the second run of his um, guidebook, didn't he? Yeah. The pocket he did. Guide, yep. the pocket guide. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It I just like seen that. Essential reading. So if you're in the scrum in the scrum space, I think Gunther's book. Um, is absolutely required reading. He's written a beautiful companion guide to the Scrum Guide, and it just it puts a lot of life into the the framework. He's he's just written such a, a masterpiece of a little book. And he's such an awesome guy. Gunther's such an awesome guy. Good dude. So I got a couple. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to dive into the book. I have a few items I wanted to talk to you guys about. And get your some of your deeper thoughts on some some things. I was yeah, I've about. got some things as well. I just want to make a, a quick observation. I was just out at. Um, M plus dev. It's a, it's a game developer conference here in Madison. And one of the talks that I went through was uh, somebody from the S Smithsonian institution and they make a lot of um, learning or games for kids to, to help them with learning in international countries and whatnot. But we, we were talking about feedback earlier. And one of the things that he was joking about was if you've ever gotten feedback, just imagine getting feedback from a five-year-old, like a five-year-old just doesn't have that filter in their head. And so it's, it's nothing but the brutal, honest truth that, that they're giving you. And it's, that's such a gift, right? To just get um, just clear or well, maybe not always clear from a child, but just unfiltered feedback. And, and I was I was hearing some of that, what you were talking about earlier from Don, and just how valuable that is for an individual with your growth, for the book in your case, but your your product development, just you got to seek that out. It, it, you really got, and, and treat it as a gift, right? Like sometimes it's hard to hear, but the more unfiltered it can be, the more direct it can be, is just just take it for what it is and, and take action on it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The feedback, I mean, it's why we do what we do, right? Scrum is really... Um, designed to leverage empiricism, which is just a series of frequent feedback feedback loops, right? Mm -hmm. Transparent work, inspect it frequently, make adaptations that make sense, and check again and check again and check again. And 
I mean, really, you think about this, the scrum master role itself, especially, I, I mean, our job is to really create the opportunity for people to make new and better decisions over and over and over again. And you do that through getting feedback and processing that feedback and deciding what that means for your product or your service or whatever it is you're building going forward. And yeah, the feedback is, I mean, if you're not, that's, that's one of the, like the things that, that we've talked about so many times, um, whether teaching classes or working with companies where they get all this amazing feedback and they ignore it because they've already planned out the next three sprints. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like, then just stop using Scrum and just, you know, go back to this upfront planning with waterfall because if you're not going to use the feedback you're spending a lot of money just to to not learn and it's you know you're saying yeah, that. we see that a and lot you, uh, what's interesting is you know i i kind of i i've really changed my opinion quite a bit i used to think that i've seen so many issues with a lack of transparency right um but most recently i've seen exactly what you're talking about Ryan where the failure to adapt right whether that's a sprint retrospective, the scrum team gets together, they do a good amount of complaining, and then they walk out of the room without any adaptation to improve their situation or their scrum team as a whole, right? So the same holds true. We, we have our next three sprints plan. We can't adapt the direction based off of what we heard in the sprint review. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I used to always just look at transparency as the thing that was, that was crushing most scrum teams, but the more I kind of deep dive into it and really take a deep think about it, it's 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 oftentimes the failure to adapt, right? Yeah, and I I, I totally agree. Like, and that's and and there's many good. It's uh, the adapt step is the change, mm-hmm. and I think change is just so hard. And we've under we've underestimated that adaptation step. People think trans, you know, transparency requires trust and courage, and we got to spend so much time with the team. And and then you know what? This is, I mean, it's just where a lot of the anti-patterns in the book flow from. It's this scrum master that's not spending time in the organization as a change agent, getting everyone prepped for what's coming. And man, then the changes come up and everyone, whoa, 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 we can't possibly change to a DevOps model or no way we can't possibly move everything to the cloud. And, you know, we can't go to automated testing and, and that adaptation step gets skipped. Problems persist. And then, uh, yeah, I, I'm in full agreement. I used to, same as Todd, I used to think transparency was the problem. I think people are getting really good at transparency. Mm-hmm. It's the adaptation or the danger of the adaptation, the fear of the adaptation, the fact that it looks a lot like change, I think is holding people back quite and a bit. And it kind of compounds on top of itself, right? Because the, the more you fail to adapt, the, um, the lesser your ability to do inspection, right? Which by side degree of it creates a lack of transparency. So if you're not adapting, right. then you're not appropriately giving yourself op- opportunities to inspect. And that could be a product owner validating that what's in production is something that people are actually using. Um, or that could just be a scrum team coming out of a sprint retrospective saying, we need to do a better job with quality. How, like, let's pair program the sprint. Let's try that more, right? Um, and then not doing it, you know? So, right. That's that's interesting because when I I think of like the one of the main patterns that I see all the time is I I think it I keep boiling it down to like what is the root cause of it and I think it's product definition mm-hmm. it's people being aligned around a narrow product definition and so they're more aligned around like an application or one system but not what they actually produce to a customer and kind of back to what both you said in your book about the quickest way to demotivate a team is to separate them from their customers I think that happens all too often in many organizations and then like there's this cascading effect of like all these other things don't really make a lot of sense if um, you know if you're not aligned around a real product. Like maybe I have a part-time product owner because I'm not really aligned around a real product. 
maybe my teams aren't self-organized because there's really don't they're not they're not aligned to real products. So they don't actually deliver value. So then somebody has to manage their time and their activity. Um, you know, maybe my definition of done uh, doesn't really matter or doesn't actually get us to something that's done because I don't have all the team members that I need to be cross-functional. So I can't actually create a product. Like all these things seem to be very connected um, when I start thinking, you know, breaking them down. Like why do these things happen? I don't know. Do you guys see that in organizations as well? Yeah. How many times do you go to, a, a, let's say, a development team and say, um, why are you building what you're building? And th- sometimes you even ask a product owner that and they say, I don't know. Right. <laughs> that's a that's a really big problem. And well, how do you how do you know when you're successful? Right. And and oftentimes uh, going back and circling back to development team members, they have no idea. Right. So if they have no idea, how is that motivating to to, to work really hard and to come up with uh, really cool ideas for what could be in the product and working with your product owner. It's um, I, I see that quite a bit. Right. It's just when, when the acceptance criteria has been fulfilled <laughs> and then we know we're done and we should move on to the next thing. Yep. You know, I actually got really frustrated with this problem at one point in my career and I, I took the sailboat retrospective and modified it into a pirate ship and created this idea of like, um, you know, can can the team from the pirate ship see dry land, and do they know what the treasure is once they get on on dry land? Do they know where X the X is that marks the spot? And it really freaked out the first team I ran it with because what it proved was there was complete there was a complete lack of alignment between the dev team and the product owner on where we were going directionally. Like the strategy wasn't wasn't aligned. Then tactically, like what treasure actual what value actually meant, it was there was a lot of different answers. And so really uncovering that, like a, if a scrum master can sniff that out quickly and really realize that, um, man, that the if that product vision is unclear, if what value actually means is unclear, and if the product owner thinks they're, they're swimming east and the product and the dev team's rowing west, I mean, I mean, there's going to be some issues and we've got to keep. I mean, then then you get the bad adaptations and then the inspections don't make sense and then transparency is muddled and then it becomes work that's that's more spiteful. And then it's just joyless work, and then the team, you know, spirals, and then you know, someone shows, let's add three people, and that'll fix yeah. things, and and it just goes, it just spirals into this weirdness that a scrum master doing their job of preserving empiricism uh, can avoid so many of these pitfalls. I like how when you um, in your book you say scrum doesn't itself doesn't go bad; it's the way that organizations implement it. So it's kind of back to that same thing of of like it's never really scrum. That's the problem. I, I think that kind of back to your point, Ryan, that, you know, too many, there's a lot of organizations that think that they can just adopt the, the best practices. You have a whole section about best practices um, in your book, but you know, they think like, Oh, we can just go adopt all these things and just buy this from Costco, this agile off the shelf at Costco and install it here at our organization. And that's just not really the way it works. Um, you know what? It's not their fault. It's, yeah. it's totally not their. So I, you're pointing out a very common pattern, right, Jeff? And I, and, but I would, I would say, Yes, you are 100% correct, but it's also the industry that's that's really perverted this. Like I just um I just I'm going through a process of right now of working with a company. And so we show up and we we start having a conversation like, "Well, where's your deck? Where's your 6-month plan? Where's your promise of what's going to happen?" And I'm like, "You know, what do you what do you mean where's the promise? We've got to try things. We're going to check it. We don't mm-hmm. we've never even worked with your people yet. How could we possibly show you what a transformation is going to do or what the impact will be?" And like, well, I have five other PowerPoints from five other of your competitors that have already promised an outcome in six to 12 months. And like, well, then 
you know, if you want the cookie cutter, take it, but you're going to, your old, your new stuff is going to sound a lot, is going to look and smell and, and feel a lot like your old stuff, fancy new names and a bunch of cool, you might do the marshmallow challenge and you might do some fun games, but at the end, are you delivering products like, yeah. and that, but that's how it's being sold, right? So you've got a lot of companies out there that are, yeah, let's just let us put six consultants in your company for 24 months and you'll be perfect afterwards. And, you know, these companies blow through millions of dollars of budget and it's just old wine in a new bottle. Yep. But it comes with a fancy yeah, looking radar graph. Yeah. You get these heat maps and radar graphs yeah. and in the meantime, no one's actually talked to a dev team in months yep. and it just, it's mind boggling. I, yeah, I mean, they, I, I feel bad for some of the business people who are getting into this now. Uh, and I don't know what stage we're in. Some people are like, we're in the, like the, the post agile stage or this. I think we're in early adoption still. I think, I, I don't think we've even hit the, um, we haven't even hit the hump yet. It's, and so they're getting into this and and they don't know any better. And there's some companies that are really good at selling consultants, but not change. And it's one of those things we've really got to start work. I, I, again, a scrum master who brings that stuff to the forefront can help their organizations you know, miss so many of these problems. But I like your point, Jeff, where Scrum doesn't fail. So I don't think it can. Just like the sprint doesn't fail, Scrum's going to do one of two things for your company or for your organization or for your team just brilliantly, right? It's going to do one of two things. One, it's going to show you exactly how to deliver uh, an increment of product that your customers love, um, that they're willing to pay for, that brings a benefit to the world each and every sprint. Or it's going to show you every reason why you can't. It's going to do one of those two things perfectly. And in both cases, I mean, it, it's a great outcome either way. Either we learn something that we need to improve, or we learned that we know how to deliver and the customer's happy. Now, how do we turn that up to 11? Either way, we got some great information and we can choose to do better next time. And I think that goes right back to what you were just talking about before, was that responding to change, right? Like, do we just keep following the plan at this point, or do we take that feedback and actually adapt from it? I, I think uh, realistically, we're always having to adapt. And the companies that don't, they die. And I, we've, we've talked about this over and over in classes where, you know, when, when I, when we were all kids, I think we're all roughly in the same age zone. I know Todd and I are probably a little older. Um, Watch it, Ryan. I think I'm the oldest, oldest, but, um, you know, the blue chip stocks, it was, it was Blockbuster. It was Kodak. It was, um, you know, pick the, pick Hilton or, all of these companies have been severely disrupted. Now, Hilton and Marriott, they're all still doing great. But the largest um, the largest hotel chain in the world is Airbnb, who owns zero property. Mm-hmm. You know, Kodak was positioned to be you know, the, the leader in digital for, for here and forever. And they said, no, it would disrupt our film market. And now Kodak is, is basically a, a novelty. You know, Blockbuster could have bought Netflix early on, but decided, nah, no one's ever going to stream video. I mean, are they kidding? Now, Netflix and, and Amazon Prime, they're two of the biggest movie house and, and television show producers on the planet. Like they are now winning awards at all these award shows, right? And so if those companies that didn't adapt, they're gone. And people who, are, who don't adapt, like if you're not changing, you're getting behind. There's no, there's no standing still anymore. And I just, it, it's table stakes. Like what I like about today versus 10 to 15 years ago is we don't have to argue about whether or not Agile is the way to go. Now we're just discussing the nuances of getting it in place because I, I don't think there's an argument anymore. You have to do this. You're, if you're standing still with the way you work currently and it's not you know, leveraging empiricism and, and putting the customer at the center of your work, there's four people in a, in a garage in Silicon Valley looking to eat your lunch. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think that 
you know, it's, um, it's something that we all, it's very, it's very different. Like from what we all grew up, you know, probably working in waterfall in a very traditional way of working. And actually I'm going to pull the quote up here from, um, from your book. Um, I really like the way Dave West, when he puts in the early phrases, he says, uh, people in organizations, business problems, suppliers, predefined, predefined processes and behavioral norms all seem to work against the simple framework, you know, we call scrum. Um, and I feel like that happens all the time. Like, it's kind of like exercise. I feel like in a little bit in a way and like in physical fitness, like you, there's these good tasting foods or whatever that are kind of staring you in the face. And sometimes you might take a step in the wrong direction, but then you, you feel the effects of that. And then you start going down maybe a little bit more of a positive path. Uh, but there's always things pulling you away from that. And I think, you know, agile or, you know, take scrum is very much like that. And that, um, there's always gonna be things pulling you away back to more of a traditional way of working. And you're just gonna have to try to do better next time. And I really like how, um, just in the book and everybody will have to read the book to, to hear these stories, but you guys tell these stories of like, Hey, we tried this. It didn't work so well doing this. I wish I would have did it this way. Um, in the past and you don't really cover it up, uh, which I, I think is really awesome how authentic you guys are in that book. Um, but I think that's a really, that's a really good way to, to talk about, um, the way we work is just say, here's a bunch of stories. Here's what we've learned and here's how we're getting better every single day. So I thought that was a really cool way that you guys put that together in the book. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I think that the stories just keep coming, right? I think the day that, um, I'll speak for Ryan on this too, but I think the day that we, that we stop messing up is probably the day that we retire. And even then, then we'll be messing up in different ways. Right. So I think it's uh, because there, there isn't a, you know, prescriptive best practice way. You can't fill a SharePoint website with the directions for how you're exactly going to enable agility for your organization. Right. Um, you wouldn't be able to find anything in it anyway, if you did fill it, (laughs) but it it really is. And I say this in classes all the time because students will ask a very specific question about a situation that they're in. And I don't have enough data on it. I can't answer. And, and I tell them that. I said, for me to answer you right now is really dangerous because I can't, I, I'm not in your situation, but here's what you can look at. Rely, look at empiricism. What impact is, is that situation having on that? Or where might this team be needing a little bit of help with the scrum values? And I think that's sprinkled all over our book. And Ryan and I really early on just said, you know what? Some of these stories, we might not look the greatest in, but we're gonna we're 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 gonna go for, for openness here because I'm sure just like everybody else, right? We're we're learning all the time. We did have a, a moment of crisis at one point. We started like these stories just start piling up, and they're all of our fail, failure stories. And like, man, people are gonna think we're awful at this. They're <laughs> never gonna hire us again. And, and, but you know what? I mean, there's some like we said. There's so many of these scrum books out there, and they're all. I mean, there's some really good ones out there. Some of my favorites are. You got Gunther's book or Scrum Mastery by Jeff Watts or, you know, Ken Schwaber's got, you know, four or five, like all of them have great stories in them. But what we noticed across all of these other books that even the ones that we love, like Extreme Programming Explained by Kent Beck, still one of the best agile books on the market today. But a lot of the, the these books that we know and we love and that are available, they all have the hero story. And it's very rare. Like, I, I can't think of another Scrum book that just basically crammed 20 years worth of failure stories and experiences into it to where we can actually like people can actually learn from us and and but we've also been we're, we're super clear in the book that oh and by the way next week we're going to have another failure story to talk about because we're going to answer a question incorrectly in a class or we're going to take this engagement and we're going to rush in and try to do things too quickly and we're going to have to 
slow ourselves down. And we're like, we're doing this constantly. We're learning through doing, and mm-hmm. and hopefully some of the mistakes that we make now are a little more nuanced than mm-hmm. the ones we made 20 years ago. But but we're still doing like we're still doing things where, well, I, well, I mean, and this should be normal. Like the that's the other weird part. Like it should it should not be unusual to hear people say, yeah, we've totally screwed up using this framework and working with companies. Everything in your product backlog is an experiment. It's a guess. It's, a, it's an assumption. Everything we intend to do as coaches in an organization is a guess. It's an assumption until we get feedback, which is why we value feedback so much. It turns the assumptions into facts and data that then we can make decisions on. And without those facts and data, we're guessing, we're, 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 we're probing, we're sensing, we're responding. I mean, we're, but we don't know anything without the feedback. And so just inherently in, within that situation, some of the things that we think are true are going to be false. And some of the things that we thought should work won't. And that's that's to be celebrated. That's it's like, yes, we learned something. You know, what can what awesome thing can we do now that we've learned this this new important thing? And I think as we get to that kind of mentality, we get to that kind of kind of viewpoint, that's when innovation happens, and that's when serendipity happens, and that's where these happy accidents that turn into amazing products happen. Um, but there's there is a barrier there in a lot of organizations where no, it, it, we cannot be wrong or else we lose bonus or we cannot be wrong or else we get fired. Or, mm-hmm. and, and for us, it's like, well, you're going to really struggle with Scrum and it's going to look a lot like Waterfall if experiments are not welcome. Yeah, it really is moving from an analysis mindset to a feedback mindset, right? And as fast a feedback loops as we possibly can get. Um, I think that's like, once you get people to make that shift or at least think about it that way, then they stop asking the question about predictability and when's all this stuff going to get done or I can't have any failures because I need to hit this bonus and I need to perfectly project what we're going to have 12 months from now or something like that. Um, I, I feel like that that is a really big change to make um, in the way that you approach work. But as long as- yeah, and it's, but I, but I will say this, something that we're super careful about in the book because that leads down the path. And Jeff, I know you're not doing that, but some people will go down this path of, you know, management's bad and metrics are wrong. And there's no way Jeff is doing that, but we've, we've heard some misinterpretations like that. So we actually put a chapter in the book about management. It shouldn't be there. Like, and we struggled with this, you know, kind of my, we were kind of like, should we cut this? Should we keep it? But finally we said, look, we need to make it super clear to scrum masters that when will it be done and how much will it cost are two reasonable questions that have to be answered. And we're going to answer them empirically. Mm-hmm. We're going to give forecast. We're going to, show updates. And, but we're also, what we're also going to do is kind of pull back the curtain a bit and be honest that, you know, in scrum, the iron triangle is still alive and well, you know, but we have fixed, uh, fixed time and we have fixed cost through the sprint, which means scope has to be flexible. And if scope is flexible, we're no longer committing to scope. We're forecasting scope and that scope will change over time as we learn about the product. And as we get feedback, which lets us make new and interesting decisions about how big of a product are we going to build? Can we do the Pinto version of a feature instead of a Cadillac? Like where's the, fle- the flexibility is all in the scope, right? Yep. And uh, as you embrace that, I think being disciplined enough to embrace that uncertainty, being disciplined enough to, uh, to accept that scope is flexible, but goals are not, that frees people. I think it's incredibly... Because then we're not under this weird pressure of predicting 12 months into the future. We're, we're spending two, three, four weeks at a time figuring out what's the most value we can deliver in this time period that contributes to this overall vision and goal. And I think that unleashes people instead of restricts them through fear and paralysis of, of this analysis stuff going on. Yeah, and you know, to add on to that, if you're a Scrum Master right now and you're listening and you're having problems with management and your organization, go talk to them. 
right? I know it sounds crazy, but I'm guilty of that as well, being a scrum master before. It's just easy to look and say um, that they're getting in our way. They keep showing up to a daily scrum. They're doing all this. Talk to them. Sit down and have an open and honest conversation with them. Because all too often, and I ask that question, I'm like, well, if you're struggling in this area, have you spoken to that manager? And the, the, the answer is no, right? So go have a conversation, see what's on their mind, take an empathetic approach um, to what they might be feeling or thinking, right? And uh, start there. But it's, it's not a conversation about how wrong right, they are. Correct. Yeah. And it's not just one time. I've watched those play out so many times too, where, yeah, you just don't get it. And the manager's like, that's cool. Now get out. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not just one conversation with them either. You're building relationships. You're earning the right to coach them. You have to earn the right to mentor people. You don't just get to walk in and say, you know, up in their desk and say, it's a new world, buddy. <laughs> Magical world. I mean, because these are super smart people. They've played by the rules. They know the how the, the how the organization works, and we want them as allies. But we should respect, you know, what they need from us. And if they're doing, I I, li- I like to take the perspective with management, especially that if I feel like they're doing something weird, I need to figure out what I've done to make a perfectly rational, reasonable person behave in a way that seems odd to me. And I can usually find something I've done that has either caused them stress, that has scared them about future work, that has upset them because something that they need isn't getting done. And the more that I put that on myself, respect their needs, understand that you know when is it done and how much will it cost are reasonable, the better I get on with them. And I think the the smoother ride that the teams will have you know, each and every sprint. So you, you touched on this just a little bit ago, Ryan, and um, I, I'm curious your thoughts on it because it was probably the most surprising chapter to me, which was basically the cheaper, better, faster chapter. Yeah. Uh, like yep. what, what changed that for you? Like what, cause you were pretty animate about that not being uh, the right. Yeah. Thing. So I had a boss who's like, look, we're the only, and I love this guy. Like he is a, one of the best VPs I ever worked for, but he is a straight up PMP. I mean, he's got his PMP framed on the wall in every office he sits in. And he, he believes that that is the right and true way to do work. And, and he's not, I mean, he's been very successful with it. Like this guy is amazing. Um, I learned a lot from him, but he, he was adamant that there's the only reason that an organization would ever implement agile is because it's better, faster, and cheaper. And those three words really like set me off. It's like, no, there's, I had this idea in my head that no, there's gotta be something more to it. There's something more grand about it. And I actually went off for a year and, and presented, I mean, it's available on, on the YouTube channel. Um, if you search Ryan Ripley on YouTube, you'll find, you know, b- the business of agile, better, faster, cheaper, or the business of scrum, better, faster, cheaper. I spent a year speaking at like 12 or 13 different conferences about why this isn't true. And at the end of the year, I realized, no, it's totally true. Right. I mean, I could not argue my way out of the fact that agile, you know, it, it, it will be better and that the outcomes can be more aligned to a customer. It can be faster and that value is delivered sooner. And it's cheaper because we're not doing the things that people don't want. So we're cutting waste. And if I had just like had like that moment of clarity a year prior, I would have saved myself from a lot of arguments from with this, with this VP. Um, I would have saved myself a lot of airfare and hotel stays at conferences. <laughs> I mean, but it, but it was one of those where, you know, and it's like anything else that that's worth getting good at. It take you have to put in the hours. And you have to put in the time and you have to put in like really heavy thought. And I spent the better part of a year really wrestling with these ideas and, and finally came to the conclusion that, you know what, so what? If it is better, faster, cheaper, if people are doing joyful work, if customers are delighted and if we're able to deliver, 
call it whatever you like. And, uh, but that was me being a selfish scrum master. And that's, that was one of the most important lessons. It was about me, what I wanted things to be. It was about my agenda. It wasn't about what this VP needed in order to create environments where the teams that were working with us could actually thrive and flourish. And it was a big, it was a big mistake on my part. And it cost me um, a year of my time, you know, I, it was a valuable year in that it led to some deeper insights into the way that I was working, the way that I'm wired, and how I needed to really leverage and amplify the the servant uh, leadership aspect of the role. But I, it's just one of those where I look back on it and I'm like, man, I could have spent that time in a better in a better way. But you know what? I also learned a lot. So, it, but it definitely was a mistake from the outset, and it I really had to sharpen my thinking on this and realize it was all about the VP. And what he needed, it was not about my need to to be right, you know, with some in, in some semantical argument, you know. So, Todd, uh, curious um, from your from your perspective. So, both you two, both Todd and Ryan, um, it was it, it, again. We've we've been talking about this quite a little bit now, but just this sense of humbleness that that you both have. But you're also now at a, um, titans um, of industry, shall we say? Like you're 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 multiple book authors now, um, your, your expertise is sought out in the community. Um, but you're both super humble dudes. Uh, like how, how do you, how do you keep that going for yourself? We were just, Ryan and I were just talking about this. And so we, we were both blessed with wives that really keep us in check. <laughs> we, we married, we both married. Way yeah. <laughs> we definitely have better partners than Absolutely. we do. Um, I, I think that, um, I, I, to, to be honest with you, it's a, it's a difficult question for me to answer because I, um, I don't think that what we're talking about here and what we wrote in the book, um, it's, it, it's all true, right? Um, uh, we're, uh, we crave like opportunities to have intellectual conversations and to try things so that we can continuously learn, uh, I would I would guess that if we read this book in two years that that we're going to be like why did we say that right um, so I, uh, I I can't can't really say because I think that that's just the way that we're both wired right and having wise it keep us in check right? <laughs> <laughs> well I, I mean and sometimes it, we get out of hand like there are times where it's like we have to remind ourselves we're here to serve others we're here to to help one another. Like the manifesto of agile software development made it clear that we're we're discovering better ways and we're doing it and we're learning those ways by doing the work and by helping others do it as well. Mm-hmm. And if you're not helping others learn along the journey, then then you're falling short of what you supposedly believe in. Um, and but we're not perfect at this. There are times where the egos get out of control, and either you know <laughs> whether Kristen or Jessica get us get us back in check, or if we both just sit back and go, "Man, my head is not correct right now." To to enter this situation. A lot of it is just, you know, years and awareness. Um, but we fail at this too. And I, I, what we hope is that, um, we keep this, this, this attitude uh, of being grateful for the, you know, the, the book seems to be doing very well. People are leaving a ton of positive feedback online and we just want to be grateful for that and never boastful about it. Um, because I, you know what, I, I think a part of it too, is my identity does not come from my profession. You know, my who I am is defined by a higher power, and it's not um, it's not any one person giving me accolades. And, and you know, to be honest, I could get you know we could get ninety nine positive reviews about the book, 
And if we get one negative one, we lock in on, on that one negative one anyways, and we just fester on that. And so, I mean, we're just, I think we're just wired to let's share the stories. Let's have the intellectual conversation. I don't think either of our identities are, are locked into this idea of thought leadership. And so if people never listen to us again after this, it's fine. Like we're still going to go do fun and interesting work and, and different projects. Like, cause we're still, you know, we're still, you know, uh, husbands, fathers, um, sons, I mean, you know, all of our different identities that are outside of this. And, you know, I think people get, I think what we've seen, especially in our industry is that people get in love with the idea of being the thought leader and they forget that there's thought that goes into being a thought leader. And, and so we just try to, let's keep our heads down. Let's do the work, you know, let's share, our, share our, our ideas freely, um, and see where things fall. And then we're just going to try to keep, you know, plugging ahead. So I, I was sitting there thinking as you were explaining all that about um, a bunch of different things, but like the connecting people to like a higher purpose is sometimes how I think about it. It's like, I don't do this to be good at agile or to be like the coach organizations or change them. It's like, I, I really do it to help and support people. And it's really about that. And so if you're really working for people, then it's easier to say, yeah, I'm not perfect they're not perfect and I'll meet people where they are and we're just, and, and you take a humble approach of learning and, and seeking to understand and, and, and things kind of just come as they come. And, and every time you, you do get a little um, cocky in the way that you're thinking about things uh, it's pretty easy to be humbled by something. Uh, it always seems to happen. So um, I, I think that that's pretty well, natural. That's a really good point. Cause I think it's also why Todd and I both picked the scrum.org community. Right. So we are surrounded by 300 other PSTs who are peers of ours who, you know, I mean, they're like, if you look at Barry Overeem and, and Christian, uh, the, the liberators over in, in the Netherlands, like they are doing stuff that just blows our minds. Like we're, we're humble just looking at what they're doing. We're trying to think, all right, how, you know, we're, we're actually going to teach a, an advanced scrum master class with Barry and Chris coming up in April. And, uh, it's in Boston and, and it's just, we did it last year and we learned a lot from it. We're doing it again this year because we, we learned so much from them. And so how could you possibly be, you know, truly arrogant in a community just filled with so many talented people? And it's, I, so Barry and Chris, I mean, we learned, you know, Jeff, you've taken classes with Todd and I to get licensed to teach classes. And, you know, you stepped up and, and talked about different things in the advanced scrum master class in ways that we'd never thought of. And we stole a few of your ideas and we use them now. And, and I mean, you know, Jeff, I mean, you've joined us too. And it's just like, you know, the Jeffs have both been in class. We, like we've all collaborated. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, when you've got like Daniel Vicanti and Yuval Urit and Steve Porter and Jill Graves and Stephanie Ackerman and Simon Rindle and just, you know, Chuck Suscheck and Ralph Yoakum and, you know, Don McGreal. And we have like these, I mean, the elite of the elites in the Scrum community, Ken Schwaber at the, at the head of, at the head of Scrum.org and Dave West and Steve Porter and, you know, all these amazing people. How could we possibly ever walk into a room and go, yeah, we're the smartest. I mean, that would just be insane, right? Right. right. And for any friends and PSTs that I left off that list, I, I'm sorry. It's like, but it's, I mean, I, we could list off 300 people and, and still, you know, Dave Dame up in Canada. I mean, Dave Dame is, um, like he's been on the he's been on the Agile for Humans show. I think he's will be on your guys' show at some point. You know, Dave Dame is um, he has cerebral palsy. He gets through through life in a motorized chair and with helpers. And he just he's one of the smartest people I know, and just like changes lives everywhere, and has never let a disability hold him back. And like, how could we possibly walk into a room with such amazing people 
and and act like that. I think it would just be completely crazy. I'll never forget when I I never forget when I got out of college and I you know had my comp sci degree and I got a job coding. And I was, uh, you know, I remember walking out of college and being like, woohoo, never need to open another book, take another test again. And then I started coding yep. and six months into it, like I was doing, I think some C++ stuff at that point. And then it was like C sharp, learn C sharp, you know, and then it was, you know, learn Angular, now learn React, now learn this. And I'm just like constantly, and you can feel buried by that a little bit. I just had this a conversation with a scrum master earlier this week. And she was saying, she's like, I just feel so behind. Like other people know much more about liberating structures. Other people know more about systems thinking. And it's like anytime. And I was like, I feel behind too. Right. And she's like, no way. And I'm like, yeah, I feel, I feel really behind all the time. And I feel like I can't, um, I can't like catch up, but that's kind of the beauty of it. Right. And that is applicable to anything really in life. Um, and you just kind of have to take that. You have to take the bulls by the horn. You have to find out what you really like to do and, um, explore it in every other way, which way that you can possibly find to explore it. Right. And just realize like, you know, Todd and I have been on this journey for the better part of 20 years and we're still learning. And so if you're a brand new scrum master and today is day one, do you have, you're not trying to catch up to us. You're improving yourself, right? Because you're going to have insights that we kind of like. There's you're going to have a different perspective. You're going to bring different things to the table. You're still doing great, valuable work. Like we might have a few more tools in the toolbox, but if you come up and talk to us, we'll share them with you. Like it, it's that kind of community. And so I, the people that feel like they're chasing or they're lagging or they're trying to you know catch up in this marathon, like it, it's it's totally not like that. Like it, it is leverage, leverage your truth, leverage the the perspectives that you bring. You know, hopefully you have some experiences that make you unique in the way that you analyze problems and help and serve teams and then read books and listen to podcasts and watch videos and go to classes and and over the next 20 years, you know, make as many mistakes as Todd and I have made and and you know, write the next, you know, great book about agile or or scrum and we'll buy it and we'll ask you to sign it and we'll thank you for for contributing to the to the body of knowledge that we love, you know? Yeah, I love what I'm hearing. Um, in particular for the PSM, I, I make a point of within the first 15 minutes of that class is inviting everybody to kind of open their minds and understand that uh, a two-day class is, does not make you the master of Scrum. Um, the certification <laughs> does not make you the master of Scrum. Um, and the the one big thing that you can really do for yourself is to just open your mind and and instill that mindset of continuous curiosity, that this is a journey um, and, and really it, it, it's never going to end. As, as long as you're a professional, as long as you're continuing to grow, there's always something new that's going to be out there. And, and Todd, I chuckled when you were talking about that feeling of, hey, I graduated. I, I never have to read another book again. <laughs> I mean, I, I that was me to a T. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden I got into this uh, and just I had Luckily, I had that sense of curiosity already, and I've had great mentors like Jeff and Chad uh, to to really kind of take me under their wing and, and and learn more from. But find find those people who inspire you to greatness and stand on their shoulders. Um, I, I just think that's great wisdom to kind of take into yourself. I didn't I didn't mention Chad Beer, but he's another one. And you know, we've got you know Chad and Eric up in Wisconsin. We got Gary Pedretti in Chicago. We've got all these amazing people, right? I mean, we can literally just rattle them off. Yeah. And it's, you know, Julie Everett down in Florida. We got. I mean, I I just we have so many great people to to lean into and to learn from. And I mean, even books like if you guys can see 
listeners can't see this, but I probably have you know a thousand books in my office. You know, I've got Weinberg's Secrets of Consulting sitting on my desk right in front of me. I'm reading it for like the fifth time. I think Weinberg has written one of the most brilliant books on the planet with uh, Secrets of Consulting. And I've got you know a stack of books that people have sent me that, hey, will you review this on the podcast? And the answer is yes, I'll get it to it at some point. And but we're constantly reading, we're constantly learning. You know, Todd, you just recommended um, what Dan yeah, Pink's I new just, book yeah, went. I don't know, mm-hmm. For anybody that hasn't uh, read that, my, my second time through it, and I, I actually am a really big fan of, um, everybody talks about Drive, but Wen is actually a fantastic book. And so is uh, To Sell as Human. Both both of his other books, yep. I highly recommend you check them out. Wen, really, I, I posted on LinkedIn the other day. I'm like, when's the last time that you thought about how you take breaks at work? Right. Right. And Dan Pink um, talks uh, uh, very scientifically about why you should. So, slight tangent, and really on my mind. And I really like breaks a lot. Yeah, but we're constantly learning, right? And so we do that through, you know, at, at night before I fall asleep, I'll watch a TED talk or a few YouTube videos. I mean, there's, you know, you can catch all of Ken Schwaber's keynotes from the last, you know, 15 years on YouTube. I think you should watch them all. I think when you, um, if you have a topic you're interested interested in, there's probably some Scrum Tapas video on Scrum.org you can watch, where all of us have been in some of those. I mean, there's a life, there's a lifetime's worth of material out there. The majority of it is free. I don't. We li- we now live in a time where there's no excuse for ignorance. And so, I if you want to learn something, if you want to master something, if you want to be amazing at something, it's all out there for you. And it's just a matter of deciding that you are a lifelong learner and that this is what it means to be a professional. I also think yeah. you need to pair nonfiction with fiction too, just a, just a side tangent, right? Like I, I, a buddy of mine and I have been reading about ultra marathon runners, right? First of all, I'm not an ultra marathon runner. I'm not a very good runner at all, but it's interesting to hear how they mentally and physically prepare themselves, right? It's correlates some of that to work, I guess. If if you're interested in that stuff, you should check out uh, David Goggins. I, did. I just um, read. Can't hurt okay. Me? Yeah, that was a really excellent book. Can't hurt me by David Goggins. What a what a uh, epic story that guy has. And and even fiction, right? Mess around with your brain a bit. I've got so this is one. I'm actually a big comedy fan, and I love. And people are going to be like, "Wow, Ryan's sick in the head." But <laughs> I, I really enjoy people like Jimmy Carr and Anthony Jeselnik. And the Jesselneck just recommended Department of Speculation by Jenny Awful. And so I've got it here that I've been kind of reading through. And it's just a it's a really fascinating piece of fiction. And but the but as I read, even as I read fiction, I'm taking little notes like Scrum Master notes. Like, oh wow, this would be a great way to approach this, or this would be what a great turn of a phrase. And I'm constantly writing in books, even fiction, about um you know, different thoughts that apply back to scrum. So, I mean, it's, there's, there's lessons. You got some, get some good jokes, Ryan. I know they need to get better. Yeah. Don't they? <laughs> it's like my Friday afternoon jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what are you reading these days, Jeff? Uh, Todd and Ryan both gave us a couple book recommendations. What are you reading? Oh man. Um, I just finished a blueprint, which I thought was really interesting understanding DNA and its influence on, on your life. But, uh, I, I just in general, I'd like Todd's, you know, mix fiction fiction in with nonfiction. Um, I, I do the same thing. I've got my audible account specifically, it's two books a month and one of them is work related. One of them is, is relaxation. And I alternate between fiction and nonfiction books. So I really like that advice. If you like, if you like nerdy stuff, add off to see, see the wizard. Yes. Super awesome. yep. I like nerdy video games type stuff. 
So a pastor out in, in Moscow, Idaho, I was listening to a podcast he was on and he said, you know, people would ask him, you know, how do you read 50, 60 books a year, which seems crazy. And what he does, and I've started this practice and it works really well. Um, he reads four books at a time. So he will read 10 pages out of each book. And by the end of the month, he's completed four books. If, if the, if the average length of a book is like 300 pages, mm-hmm. so it actually gives us time to break up things and think about things and like they percolate and some of the ideas crisscross. And so I'll start, um, a nonfiction, a fiction, a scrum book, and some kind of, um, you know, Christianity based kind of book. So I've got like kind of the religion, I've got like the professional, I've got the fun, I've got kind of like the, some world thing that I'm interested in. By the end of a month, I've completed four books and it's, and the ideas kind of intermingle and I've got a notebook where I kind of take down interesting things. And, um, you know, by the end of, by the end of a year, like last year, I was able to actually complete over 50 books, including audible. And, and so people are like, well, how do you take time to learn? Well, first of all, Todd and I, and you guys too, probably, probably spend way too much time on airplanes yep. and in the back of cars and in hotel rooms. And so I think part of it too, like, it's funny, I'll see people on flights where they just play candy crush for four hours or on like, you know, on a, on the flight to South Africa where I got to go keynote at agile Africa, a 15 hour flight where people are sleeping and playing candy crush and watch it. I was reading, you know, I, I watched a few movies, but I'm trying to like also decide, like make good use of time and, you know, all those fun things. But I, the four book idea is interesting. 10 pages a day out of each book, break it up throughout the day. And by the end of the month, you've completed four books and it's an awesome feeling. Hmm. Seems like a lot of whip, but I, I guess I shouldn't knock it until I try it. And I want to correct myself. The, the book that I was referencing for you, Jeff, was Off to Be the Wizard. It's by Scott Meyer. I right. need to correct myself. I, I recommend it to anybody listening to. It's, it's really good. It's funny. That's the problem with talking with a group like us. We can spend your money at Amazon. Speaking of spending your money at Amazon, I mean, everyone should definitely go out and buy Fixing Your Scrum, yeah. Practical Solutions, Common Scrum Problems by Todd and I. Um, and actually hit us up at Ryan Ripley on Twitter. Todd, who are, you're at Todd underscore Miller yep. one one. You've got me memorized. So hit us up on Twitter, right? Let us know what you think. We, we love hearing... You know, I mean, we've gotten everything from thank you that saved our retro to um, on page 42. There's a typo here that really threw me off, but I figured it out. And I mean, we love all of it. Like it's it, so we're, co- we're we'll collect the errata and in the in the next print run, we'll fix it. So thank you for that. If the book helped you out, we love hearing about that. Um, if it didn't help you tweet us um, and let's see if we can make it uh, turn it into a win. So but definitely. Out of all the books we've talked about, buy Fixing Your Scrum first. (laughs) Definitely. Awesome. I like it. I think that's a good way to wrap up. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.